uh, to be back after uh, two weeks. Um, so thankful for the opportunity to get away, uh, to do a little bit of vacation and rest up in uh, the north. Uh, Ellen and I I'd spent a couple of weeks in Montana, and there's something about the beauty of that place that is so good for the soul. Uh, I've, I've said that uh, Montana, uh, Western Montana in particular, is, is, is like a cathedral. Everything reaches to heaven, and uh, to have that opportunity is, is a great blessing from God and a great blessing from you. But that blessing comes at great cost to others, and I want to say thank you to, to the staff and the ways that they filled in while I was out. When, when I'm out, there is always uh, more work that that means, especially on Sundays with sermons and, and things like that. I want to thank Richard and, and Barry for stepping in and to thank them wholeheartedly for the work that they did put in, which is not a part of their normal weekly activities. And for them to put in that kind of work and to be diligent in their study and to be so willing and, and available to, to preach in my absence, I just want to say thank you to them for doing that. And uh, it's great. I, the, the staff... The staff that we have here is just an incredible blessing. The cohesiveness, the friendships that we have forged over the decades is really, really great. I'm thankful for all of them. I would invite you to, we're now at that part of the, the assembly, as you can tell, where we're going to open up God's Word and we're going to think about what God is saying to us for our lives today, on this date, in this era, on this planet, and how to bring blessing, the knowledge of God, to it. And so inside of your bulletin, there is uh, an insert on the back sides, the MPG. The MPG stands for Memorize and to Pray and to Glorify. It's about taking the sermon further down the road. And we want the Word of God not to just be something that we think about and uh, it, it touch our lives on Sunday. We want the Word of God to touch our lives every day. And I would I would ask that you get this out, take it home, and there's going to be a scripture for you to memorize this week. There's going to be a, a specific prayer that I'm going to challenge you to pray. And then there are some very practical things to do each day this week that's going to be in the glorify section. And then when you turn it over, you can see we're going to begin a new sermon series today that I'm calling Undeniable. There is something beautiful about the life of a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth that is undeniable. And what we're going to be thinking about today is how when we have these encounters with people uh, at, at varying degrees of, of effectiveness and, you know, impact and consciousness, there should be a, a way that we impact people's lives that we are somewhat unforgettable to them in terms of the blessing and the stark contrast in terms of love and beauty and gentleness and kindness and peace with what we typically see in the world. And I want to begin by taking us back to the end of the Gospels. At the end of the Gospels, as you know, we read about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is crucified on the cross. For three days, he is buried in the tomb on the third day, which is the first day of the week. He is resurrected to newness of life. The resurrection means not that Jesus hit death and bounced back, but that he went through death to the other side, and everything is going to be different because of that. And after the resurrection, Jesus spends time with his disciples, which leads us chronologically to the next book in the New Testament, which is Acts, written by Luke. And in Acts, it begins with the ascension of Jesus. And the church begins 
50 days after the resurrection, 10 days after the ascension, the church begins on Pentecost in Jerusalem. And by the end of Acts, so you have the church beginning in Jerusalem at the beginning of Acts. At the end of Acts, you have Paul, the apostle, getting to Rome. And he knows that the, you know before he gets there, the gospel has gotten there. And there are these little house churches that are spread throughout all of Rome. And those that, that study these things, the historians and the biblical scholars, tell us that, that, that is not, Rome is not where it stopped. The, the gospel and the church spread to the entire world. And by the end of the third century, the scholars tell us, the academics tell us, the gospel has spread through the entire world. The world, in other words, has basically become Christian. Now, out of those first three periods, uh, first three centuries, there are a lot of description of the, of the Christians that come out. Uh, I've read many of them to you over the years. I'm going to read one to you that is addressed to a fellow by the name of Diognetus. And it's a description in the middle of the second century of what disciples of Jesus looked like in the Roman Empire. And it begins with these words, and I quote, They exist in the flesh, but they do not live by the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, all the while surpassing the laws by their lives. They love all men, but are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They lack everything, yet they overflow in everything. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor they are glorified. They are spoken ill of, and yet are justified. They are reviled, but blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if raised from the dead. They are assailed by the Jews as barbarians. They are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to give any reason for their hatred. End of quote. So what I just read to you is a description from, uh, you know, roughly 18 centuries ago of what Christians were seen as in the 2nd and 3rd century A.D. Now what we want to do is, there's the description, we want to speed forward a couple of centuries to the 10th century. There is a young prince by the name of Vladimir the Great. He is now about 980 A.D., he is now the pagan mon monarch of what is known as Russia and the Ukraine. He was actually kind of housed there in Kiev. And as a new monarch and as a new sovereign over the people of Rus, which becomes Russia, he notices that the, the kingdom, the people of the kingdom are not unified. And in his mind, about 988, he's thinking, I need to send some envoys out to the surrounding countries, surrounding kingdoms, and have them experience the religions of those realms in order for us in Russia to find a religion that will unify all people. And so he sends the envoys out. They go to all of these different lands. They come back from these different lands and describe all of the kinds of different faiths that they discovered and experienced, and for the most part, they were all basically the same except one. And one envoy in particular described, he had gone to Constantinople, which was the center of Christianity at that time, and how he described Christianity captured Vladimir's heart because of how it was characterized. And the description of Christianity by this envoy goes like this, 
and I quote, We went to Constantinople, and they led us to a place where they worshipped their God. And we knew not whether we were in heaven or earth. For on such there is no such vision or beauty, and we do not know how to describe it. We only know that God dwells among men. And we cannot forget that beauty. End of quote. We cannot forget that beauty. Vladimir the Great adopts Christianity as the new religion, the new faith for the Russian people. And the reason for that is this. It was not so much the arguments but the aesthetics. It was not so much the arguments, but the aesthetics, the beauty of the Christian faith, the beauty of the Christian faith as it is translated into behavior and life and words and relationships that captured his heart. It was the undeniableness of beauty. You know, I... I don't claim to be a scholar, but I am extremely appreciative of all of the apologetics that I have read over 40-plus years, the, the books on ethics and the great contributions that, that biblical scholarship have made to my own understanding of the Bible and even more importantly to my, my faith in God. These things have been essential, the, the, the truth and the knowledge the, the, the different levels of, of academics, the apologetics, all those different areas, they have been an essential part of who I have become, and they always will be. But in the skeptical world that we live in, and by that I mean we live in a world that is suspicious of truth claims, because there are so many, and they're not backed up, or have become jaded by assertions to the moral higher ground, only to find that it's really the lower ground. In this skeptical world that we live in, there is an extraordinary allure to beauty. Our Master and our Lord, Jesus, calls us to follow Him as His disciples, which means that we apprentice our life to Him. We walk in His footsteps, as His life is beautiful, our life, too, is beautiful. And here's the point that I want us to remember as we go through this series of just a couple of weeks, and it's this. You can't dispute a beautiful life. Another way of saying it might be this. You can't argue with a changed life. But you cannot dispute a beautiful life. There is something about beauty that is incontestable. Beauty is undeniable. Politics or the points of, of different areas of academia can be argued all day long. But the truth of Christianity is hard to dispute when it creates in a fallen human being a beautiful life. A life that is characterized by love and gentleness and peace and patience and reconciliation and forgiveness and generosity. The truth of Christianity is hard to dispute when it becomes translated into a way of living. It's hard to deny it. That beautiful life is obvious. That kind of beauty is incontestable. 
the, the words of the truth may not make sense, but you cannot deny the impact and the power of those words in the way that it transforms lives. And maybe, just maybe, you know the world is always going to need sermons. The words are always, you know, the world is always going to need the, the words of the gospel to be spoken. But maybe what the world needs is less arguing and more beautiful Christian lives. Which brings us to the passage this morning. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the version that we find in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, in that Jesus is describing his disciples, the people that have, again, apprenticed their lives to him, that are following in his footsteps, that are living as he lived, he describes them as salt and light. Now, he's going to use different metaphors, but in this particular passage, he says that you and I are like salt and we are like light. What is he talking about? Well, I want to read that passage again, and I want you just to hear again. There's basically three thrusts or four thrusts in this short passage, I want you to hear him. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. There's two. You are the light of the world. Three. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And then number four, so let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's kind of in that last, that last sentence, that fourth part there, that we find one of the greatest challenges that you and I are ever going to meet. I mean, if we live a salt in life, that means doing our good deeds in such a way, living our lives in front of people in such a way that when these good deeds are seen, we don't get the thanks. We are so freed from guilt and, and, and greed and fear that we can do these good deeds where we don't get the thanks and God gets the glory. Now again, in this passage, Jesus is saying, this is what characterizes your life. You look like salt and you look like light. You are salt and you are light. The compliment, salt of the earth, comes from this passage. You know, we, uh, we use it all the time. In fact, I, I used it several times this last week, talking about people being the salt of the earth. We don't really think too much about salt. In fact, we pretty much take salt for granted unless our intake of salt is so great that it causes hypertension and high blood pressure. But everywhere we go, there's salt. There's a salt shaker and there's a pepper shaker. You can go to a restaurant, you can go to the grocery store, and there's an aisle that's just dedicated to all the different kinds of salts. But salt in the ancient world was not taken for granted. Salt in the ancient world was precious, and it was precious for a lot of reasons, but all of those reasons put together made salt essential to life. It made survival in the world easier. In fact, it was so precious that it became part of the paycheck for Roman soldiers. The, not only are, you know, the salt of the earth you know, from this passage, but the idea of salt and its preciousness is in he's worth his salt, meaning that he's worth his pay when it came to Roman soldiers getting their pay. Salt. You're also light. In our world, light is something that we take for granted. 
you know, I walk into my house and I say, Alexa, turn on the living room lights and there's light. I say, Alexa, turn on the office light and there's light. I don't even have to flip a switch these days. But in the ancient world, there was not that. Light was not something that we take for granted. I mean, think about all of the places in this world that you go to and you take life for granted. This building, your office, the car, the streets, homes, businesses, downtown. Light is something that we take for granted, but not so in the ancient world. A single light made a huge difference at night. When you saw a light at night, you know what it meant? It meant that there's people there and there's safety. And in the complete darkness, you know, no streetlights. There's no way to navigate in the dark except by the moon and the stars. A light, like a light that's a city set on a hill, was something that you could navigate by. And it was something that brought you to people and it brought you to safety. So what does Jesus mean when he begins to reference your life and my life as these two things? As his disciples, we are salt and light. Well, one thing he's going to mean is this. Salt and light have undeniable characters. Salt and light have undeniable characters. Nothing tastes like salt. You can close your eyes, put something in your mouth, and you know immediately if it's salty. It's that that powerful. It's that influential that your taste buds immediately know and recognize something as salty. I mean, nobody goes to the fridge and pours a a glass of of cold milk and gulps it down and then spits it out because it's salty. You know it when you taste it. And Jesus goes on to say, and this is a, a bit frightening, Jesus goes on to say that if you lose that undeniable characteristic of, of salt as a disciple of His... It is no longer salt. It's no longer good for anything. In fact, it has become useless. By the same token, you can be in a room that is completely dark where you can't even see your hand in front of your face. I remember uh, back in my college years in Abilene, we had gone into a place with a flashlight and we had gotten to a place where we turned off those flashlights. Could not literally, I mean, the, the darkness was palpable. It felt like a weight on top of you. It was so dark. There was absolutely no light in that place. In fact, I literally put my hands in front of my face and could not see them. And then somebody counted to three and the flashlights came back on. And immediately we could see that light. Light in the darkness is unquestionably obvious. And so salt and light have undeniable characters. I mean, you know them. They are different. They say they're obvious. And then the second thing, living as salt and light in a certain way brings glory to God. Being salt and light is more than just philosophical. It's more than a way of thinking about your life. It is a way of living. It is a lifestyle of doing good. It is the lifestyle of doing good just like Jesus. You remember when Peter in Acts chapter 10 is describing the life of Jesus, he says in verse 38, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, And out of all of the things that that Peter, knowing Jesus personally and having spent those those years of ministry with him, out of all of the things that that he could have said about Jesus, Peter says this as one of those things. And how he went about doing good. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 verse 16, 
that you're light. And what that means is that when you let your light shine before men, they see something. They should see good works, and they should see good works that, again, do not lead to you getting the thanks, but to glorifying God with their lives. In other words, as salt and light, we live as sermons. Now, what is a sermon? A sermon is always saying something about God, right? A sermon is always saying something about God, describing God, illuminating God, manifesting God, revealing God. It points to God. And how you live, Jesus is saying, in his kingdom as his disciple is going to say something to other humans about God. Your life as salt and light, that beauty is going to point to God. And through the rest of that chapter, beginning with um, a a section on, on anger, Jesus begins to describe to those people that are listening to him in the Sermon on the Mount what it means to live as salt and light, his disciples. And we don't have enough time to go over them this morning, but in the fifth chapter there are two that I want to just bring to the forefront of our thinking. The first one is this. If you want to live the beauty of salt and light as a disciple of Jesus, you choose reconciliation, not violence. That is the life of Jesus. Choose reconciliation, not violence. He says in verse 21, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. And then a couple of verses later, he says, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Friends, there is nothing that stands out in our world more than a people who have renounced violence as a way of getting things done. Living as salt and living as light is more in the mind and the teachings of Jesus and in the kingdom of God, it is more than technically not committing murder according to Jesus. Living as salt and light is renouncing meanness and renouncing hostility as a response in order for reconciliation to have a chance. The one who created the world and the one who is the Lord over it did not call 10,000 angels to destroy his enemies because he was choosing to reconcile. He chose to love the world that rejected Him. He chose to love the disciples that had forsaken Him. He chose to love the enemies who crucified Him. And He forgave them all. Even the ones that were driving the spikes into His his feet and into His hands. He forgave them all and then He died. And three days later, the violence of that moment is is completely undone by the resurrection. 
The cross to us today does not mean so much the violence of the crucifixion as it is a reminder of how love triumphs in the resurrection over the worst that men can give out. Love and forgiveness triumphed over the ugliness and the meanness of violence in order for us to be reconciled to God. And then a second one a little bit later down the road, and this will be verse 43 through 48, is that we are to bless both friends and enemies. Blessing friends is an easy thing to do, and it's something that we do all the time. It's something that's sort of expected. We don't even have to think about it. If you're my friend, my family, you're my, you know, my, my ally, I'm going to bless you. We're, we're good. We're going to be connected to each other. But blessing enemies, proactively, those that wish to do us harm, to proactively bless them, that is one of the hardest things to do. To not fight slander with slander. To not fight gossip with gossip. To not fight road rage with road rage is what Jesus calls us to do in order to live as salt and light. Those undeniable, beautiful characteristics of the kingdom of God in front of the watching eyes of the world. And so he says, you shall love your neighbor. This is what you've heard. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. When's the last time you prayed for somebody that you know wishes you harm? And it wasn't the prayer of, you know, God, you know, break their teeth. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Because this is what God is like. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. Evil and the good get the sunlight. And He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Righteous and the unrighteous, they get the rain. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? You're not standing out as salt and light. You're just doing the status quo of the planet. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? As salt and light, we are called to live this beautiful life that stands out and reminds people of what our points to what God is like. And he says, Therefore, you are to be teleos, mature, complete, perfect, put together, beautiful as your heavenly father is perfect and beautiful and put together truth friends must always be spoken but truth is not only to be spoken it is to be lived the gospel is not only the truth that needs to be spoken but the gospel is the it's not just a, a, a truth. The gospel is a power that comes into our lives to transform our lives into becoming like Jesus in all that we do. And, and right now, our world stands in a place where we need less meanness and less violence and less arguments, even though we will always speak the truth. We will always speak the truth in love, but we will live the beauty of the gospel. 
And in people seeing the beauty of the gospel as it's translated in the way that we speak, the way we forgive, the way that we are gentle, the way that we are generous, the way that we interact with each other, the way that we become one, the, the, the way that we worship God, our values, our emotional life, the way that we will sacrifice, the way that we will do good, even to those that wish us harm, will be a, a tremendous blessing to this community. There may be something that we might be able to do in this church today to bless you. There may be something that we can do. Pray for you if you would like to become a disciple of Jesus. We certainly would love to sit down and talk to you about that today. But whatever that need might be, we're going to have some shepherds down here at the front. Whatever those needs might be, we want you to come forward at the singing of this next song to let those needs, to let those needs be known. And for the rest of us, let us stand now in the 